The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. We've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, we strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story, the story of a life well-crafted. This is the story Craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. For populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. Politics used to take a summer vacation in August. That's another norm we've blown through. It's one that I, like most Americans, would like to restore. We just need a week or so to rest. Unfortunately, this isn't going to be that week, although we're going to have a really good time this morning. Uh, We're going to spend the next hour giving you some information, information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on last week's events, on the longer term, and to encourage you to act on that judgment. As a businesswoman, I focus a lot on the numbers. The numbers tell me what's out of the norm, what needs attention, and how to prioritize the necessary changes. Well, last week... Last Friday, the Dow dropped 663 points after China and the United States both ratcheted up tariffs on an increased number of products. Wait, 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 wait. I thought it was because of a tweet. Well, he tweeted out that he was going to raise the uh, rate of tariff on certain products, and and he was piqued with um, both uh, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Powell and and our friend Chairman Chi. Chi, yeah. yeah. Two of, well, the the, the difference them, being Powell's term is four years and Chi's is for life. Yeah. And she is he is is his buddy, somebody that he, mm. he admires, right? No, yesterday because he, because no, he, 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 he wishes he could have an unlimited term, right? Yes. God help us. But Joe Walsh is gonna keep that from happening. I saw that he officially uh, announced he's running this morning. He was on this week on ABC saying that that um, uh, I could I guess I could pull it back up here. I just had it in my hand. Well, uh, he put out a tweet and he's been retweeting everybody that tweets him congratulations and or go get him tiger. Well, you know, the silver so, fox as as you would as you call him I, the silver I, fox. He is the silver fox. I mean, he's. Definitely. Um, but. Uh, and Jerome Powell, he, he, he appointed Jerome Powell. Why, yes. is, why is he complaining? Because he, he puts Jerome, these people in. Be, because Jerome Powell has, is, you know, the Fed is independent. The Fed is not a part of the government. The Fed is, is an independent 
organ organ created by the government and its responsibility is monetary policy, is to maintain the balance between inflation and employment. And right now we're, we're just about where we should be if we didn't have all of this uncertainty caused by this trade war with China. So the Fed is trying to keep things on the straight and narrow and the um, and and the president is trying to ratchet up the pain which the Chinese are feeling. But you know what? That wasn't really what we were going to talk about this morning, folks. There will be a second podcast that's going to talk about China and tariffs and and maybe try to make some sense out of this thing. But this morning. We're going to focus on the racial divide in American electoral politics. Of 228 million eligible voters in November 2018, only a a little bit less than 154 million of those actually registered to vote in the 2018 midterm election. That's about 66%. You know what? Overall, that puts us at the bottom of the developed democracies in the world in terms of voter participation. And that's a number we should be sad about. But that's not the only thing. Democrats had an overall 12 million vote nationally in registration that broke down, according to Gallup, 31% Democrat, 24% Republican, and 42% Independent. And you know what? That's roughly equal to the distribution in California. Uh, Is this a case of so goes California, so goes the nation? White registered voters numbered 124 million, or about 68% of eligible uh, citizens. But only 55% of those, 99 million, uh, actually voted. But they still outperformed, and that's an important word when you talk about the distribution of vote and who went won and who didn't. They outperformed other ethnic groups. Hispanic voters, there were about 16 million um, who actually registered of an eligible population of almost twice that, 29 million. And of those, only a little over 11 million or 40% of eligible uh, citizens voted. So depending on the state, but nationally, about 8% of Hispanics voted Republican in this last election. That's a steady decline from the 40% who voted for George W. Bush in 2004. 19 million of voters identified themselves to census officials as black, representing about 63% of those who would be eligible in the black community of about 30 million people. Black registration in about <clears throat> is about the same percentage as the voting population, but they underperform with only 51% of those who are registered actually voting, just a few over 15 million. But 98% of black voters are registered and vote as Democrats. Wait a minute, you say. Wasn't it the Republicans who freed the slaves in the aftermath of the Civil War? Weren't Republicans in the 19th and 20th century the proponents of civil rights with, of course, caveats? Caveats were big. 
weren't there weren't the only two black secretaries of state in the history of the United States Republicans, both Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, who served in the Bush administration, Bush forty three. During President, isn't it, wasn't it President Eisenhower who sent federal troops to Little Rock to enforce the Supreme Court decision in Brown versus the Board of Education? And wasn't the Supreme Court Chief Justice, California's own Earl Warren, a Republican? When and how did the Republican Party lose 98% of the black vote in the United States? And can Republicans... <clears throat> or even centrist independents win back any significant portion of that black population. So here to answer, help us answer that question is Karen Watson. Karen is the founder and president of GOPBuzz.com, an internet portal for Republican-centric events nationwide. Karen Watson is the author of three books, including How the Democrats Stole the Black Vote and How Republicans Can Get It Back. While a high school student in 1984, Watson attended her first Republican National Com Convention to nominate Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush as his vice president and has remained active in the Republican Party, a keynote speaker at various Tea Party and Republican clubs. Karen communicates her message that Republican conservative values are the right values for all Americans, regardless of race or gender. And when we come back from our important commercial break, Karen's going to explain that to us. And we're going to have a uh, wide ranging conversation that answers the questions we've just asked. Listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with Karen Watson. Karen, thank you so much for taking time out of your Sunday morning to talk with us, especially on this crazy Sunday morning. <laughs> thank you, Joyce. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your wonderful show. Well, you know, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, how the Democrats stole the black vote is, um, is, is a, a very quick read, but it's extremely, it's so enlightening. And the, and the, the past couple of week as, weeks as we've been talking back and forth, I found all sorts of other factoids. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of opens a whole new vein of, of thinking in terms of, um, why things are the way they are. So much as Democrats want to point back to Thomas Jefferson as the founder of the Democratic Party and go straight to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, the 19th and 20th century, as you know, um, we've got Woodrow Wilson, who was an avowed racist. I uh -huh. mean, huge written track record. Um, you, who would have thought that you go black? The most liberal of... FDR's appointments to the Supreme Court was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, and yeah. so was Harry Truman. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And yet, I mean, it's disturbing that um, that the things we don't know, you know, absolutely. And I think that 
that's what's so scary. You know, when you look at the overwhelming uh, percentage of loyalty that blacks have given to the Democrat Party, you would have thought that the black community would have received much better uh, than they've gotten from the Democrat Party. So that's that's what's really upsetting. I have told so many people, I wish the Democrat Party performed better for black America, for the for what they have done for that party, but they just simply have not. And that's the most unfortunate part, is that the Democrat Party does not have an agenda that benefits black Americans except talking about things like reparations, as if that is going to move the needle for black America, just having the conversations about these things, but not really dealing with where the needle is in black America on poverty, on education, on, you know, just so many of the things that are important to all of us. Well, that but they let's just do let's, not have an answer for that. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about um, the promises made. I mean, we if we look at the beginning of the transition of the black vote from solidly Republican in the South to moving toward the Democrats as as um, Southern blacks moved north in the um, uh, industrial heyday of, of the Second World War and the and the and the benefits of um, Roosevelt's social safety net, I think, had something to do with that. But those people, by and large, did not benefit um, in terms of the quality of life or integration um, or or the legal protections um, that we take for granted today. Yes, I agree. I mean, when you look at the heyday of black America post-slavery, then you think of things such as what they call the Black Wall Street, where you had blacks who opened, established, and ran hospitals, uh, transit operations with buses, not just doctors and lawyers, but, you know, huge enterprises. And the story of Oklahoma, Black Wall Street, what they call something we don't talk about very often, but should be studied. So that was coming out in the uh, the 40s, and you talk about the Harlem Renaissance, you know, those things that were done without government interference, and some of the really true heydays financially, economically, educationally, through black America. And and what happened to those things? I mean, they... they were did they dissipate with the end of the war or or are those still um thriving enterprises i think um jj watts comes out of that well that well, that black wall of, street in oklahoma yeah when you think of that's such a good question so what happened i mean that's always the question for everything what yeah. happened what happened yeah. and why are there no what happened yeah. and why are there no the benefits question of those two words what happened you know but one of the things that happened with oklahoma was there was a riot the, and the and it was a riot that um you know no no riot is great but there was a riot against the blacks who were thriving in Oklahoma 
at, from the racist whites in Oklahoma. I mean, they burned down their buildings. They really pushed them out of Oklahoma. So that's a big what happened there. And when you look at overall, you can. One of the things is is you see that the first self-made woman millionaire was a black woman named Madam C.J. Walker. And her company still exists today. And this was back from, you know, the 30s. So um, she did hair care products. But just the fact that her company, very few companies last for over 100 years. And her company still lasts, uh, you know, exists today. So I think a lot of what happened is there was a squelch for uh, just their very existence where they couldn't survive. And then the other thing is a lot of what happened is integration. So there was a push from from self-fulfilling, you know, building your own theaters, building your own this and that to, well, let's integrate to these white institutions and and demand acceptance for there, but neglecting the own, uh, you know, the things that were owned by black Americans for their own thriving. So, so you... So you think some of that, the the push for integration in the 50s uh, began mm-hmm. to, but why would that shift um, um, voting so dramatically from a historic Republican perspective to a, you know, solid Democratic, uh, uh, absolute uh, mm-hmm. Democratic vote? What, what, well, what happened was during the, Great Depression, and the Great Depression wasn't just didn't just hit America; it hit the world. So it was a worldwide depression. When that happened, all of you know every vote went for the Democrats. You know, coming out of that, you know, mm-hmm. so Hoover lost everybody because people were hurting and they needed a new answer. And then you know FDR came up with his New Deal, so that was the big shift when just going from one to the other. And then you had blacks returning a little bit post FDR, but not to the same extent in the huge blocks that were the Republican Party. And a big shift came through in the nineteen sixty election between Kennedy and uh Nixon. Nixon who was of course Eisenhower's VP was running against uh, JFK, and even though JFK did not meet with Martin Luther King Jr. prior to him being elected president, it was this push that happened when JFK's brother, Robert Kennedy, made a call to Coretta Scott King the weekend before the election in reference to Martin Luther King Jr. being in jail to say, well, you know, we're really sorry about this. We're going to do everything we can to get him out of jail. That call before the uh, 1960 election. And so it was, it pushed many blacks to support Kennedy for that, 
for that election. But and even but though, then but then we're in what? the throes. But I'm sorry for interrupting you. But no. But then then we're in the throes of the beginning. You know, we're we're in the throes of the so-called civil rights movement at that moment when uh, voting for Southern blacks was still quite an issue. So was yes. this more a shift in in the North? that helped Kennedy in, in 1960 or not? It, it was, but almost, it was almost forbidden for blacks to vote in, in the South for a Democrat. I mean, for anybody, because blacks were, you still yeah. had, whether you were or a Democrat, you still had to pay the poll tax. You still had to go through the ridiculous test. You still had to vote, and that hurt all black voter participation. That's what Medgar Evers and Fannie Lou Hammer and, you know, they were for. So it. But they were being. And and here's here's the fact. You know, we're the ones who were finally saying, well, you know, I'm not going to vote for for Nixon because he has not reached out to Greta. You know, so I'm going to reach out to the guy who says he cares, even though JFK had never met Martin Luther King Jr. prior to that, and Nixon had met and had developed a friendship. But it's you know what you don't know, you don't know. That's and true. So based so, off of emotion, yeah. If you go around and you start painting someone as the evil person, then you just say, "Well, Lord knows, I don't want to vote for the evil person." And you have Nixon, who was from a Quaker. People who know the Quakers were abolitionists, and you know, and and time and then of course Nixon uh, coming out of California you know he didn't have that history but was doing a lot of things in the background to release King from one of his many jail things you know and and so and on the didn't know that and of course he didn't publicize it and since it was done quietly with Nixon but loudly with Kennedy and people went off what they heard so they thought that you would have uh, JFK more sympathetic to the needs of black people and, than what would have happened under Nixon. And and that is a moment where we're going to stop and take a quick commercial break, and we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about LBJ and JFK, and then we're going to move forward to a more modern era. Listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with Karen Watson talking about how the Democrats stole the black vote and how Republicans can win it back. And I was saying to Karen in the break, I think there's more than one podcast here. Uh, and more more than one radio show. Um, I, if we go back to this moment in 1960, um, which is um, we actually got television at my house, Karen, I, the night John Kennedy was elected, and I've told the audience wow. before, my brother and I would have sat and watched a test pattern. And so I remember my parents sitting there watching this, and that was the night that my father confessed to my mother that he had voted for Dewey in 1948, and she didn't talk to him for three days. <laughs> so I come from what is truly called a purple family. Um, anyway, 
it the the thing about both John Kennedy and Lyndon Baines Johnson is that neither of them was really strongly pro civil rights. It was Bobby Kennedy who pushed both of them. It was Bobby Kennedy who had the social conscience. Um, and, And the fact of the matter is that Martin Luther King was politically conservative and a staunch anti-communist who would be horrified to know that his statue on the on the National Mall was actually crafted in China. Mm-hmm. He saw that he he would he would be horrified. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, so if we move if we move forward just a tiny bit and we look at 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 George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, he appointed Colin Powell as the Joint Chief, um, the, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, in, yes. and, and that is the only black to have ever served in that role, although the United States military is the most integrated part of our, of our society. Um, yes, and, and But that didn't happen overnight either. That, it that. didn't happen overnight, and that is such. I mean, all of this, when, and that's why I love history because history really shows us not just where we came from, but really where we are. Because you can kind of see how this happened and how we got to be where we are. It's. I always tell people, I go around the country talking about light topics, race and politics, and they need to be light topics. And if we study our history and we know our history, then we will realize we have so much more in common than we are indifferent. Absolutely. And that we can stop weaponizing race against all of us. And I was asked the question, I was in Virginia, as you know, uh, this week, two days yeah. ago, at a conference, and one of the panelists asked what the difference would be if Martin Luther King Jr. was a white man instead of a black man. And I said, well, we have to remember that one of the, the bloodiest revolution, or abolitionists was John Brown, a mm-hmm. white man. Yes. So it, it doesn't change the fact. It, it just that you, could, you cannot, you don't have to be black to care about the souls of black folk. As James Baldwin said, we, we can care about each other, and we have. And... When you think of in 1619, the first blacks from Africa landed in our, our land as slaves and, and as indentured servants in 1619, but the day they landed, so did the abolitionists. The abolition movement and the slave movement in America has been in tandem all the way through. Yes. And we know the story about slavery, but we seldom study the story of abolition. And because we don't know it, it has been weaponized against our great country, and that—that that is the great thing. When what what really bothers me most about the Democrats, outside of the old ideas, I mean, I can go on about that. But the fact that they have weaponized our the miseducation of what really happened to blacks in America and continue to do that and make people unacceptable by that term racist, 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 which just means don't consider that person as an option. Don't con- and it's, it's shameful. And the, the history of racism, I mean, when it comes to the Democrat Party, they have a lot of explaining to do. And yet 
we just let them loosely put that garment upon people such as President Trump, such as the Republican Party, well, without you have, giving a basis for it. You have to acknowledge you have to acknowledge you have to acknowledge that that Trump um, from the beginning of his campaign for the presidency has done nothing to tamp down those um, fires. Uh, you know, if if we just take a step back and we look at and we look at at you know again two firsts. President Bush had two black secretaries of state, lifelong Republicans. Okay, Condoleezza Rice lost friends in the Birmingham bombing. Little girls who were her friends was a is a lifelong Republican, and um, and and you look at. You look at that outreach. There has never been um, a. There've been women, politically powerful women secretaries of state, but there's never been a Democratic uh, secretary of state. There has only been um, there has only been um, one black secretary of education, and again, a Republican out of Texas in the Bush administration. Okay, those efforts, those people bring to those jobs their experience, their American experience, which is different. I am realizing as I speak to people like yourself and others um, in in southern politics and southern United States politics, that their experience as Americans is different than our experience as Americans. And it just enrages it. I and I thought, you know, I have. I have to tell you that the night that that Barack Obama won the Iowa caucus, lifelong conservative that I am, I cried because I thought, you know, undergraduate, um, I'm a history major with an emphasis in the in Jacksonian democracy. Um, And so I've studied these issues for, you know, in depth. I mean, Ken Stamp was my major advisor, the guy who wrote The Peculiar Institution. Um, and I I cried that night that he won the Iowa caucus because I thought, we have come so far. And yet it turns out, Karen, and we'll talk about this when we come back from the break, that that was an illusion. And and And, and I think our politics... Uh, the, the cynicism of our politics has a lot to do with that. So hold that thought, and we'll be back after this brief commercial message. You're listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org, reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with Karen Watson, the author of How the Democrats Stole the Black Vote and How Republicans Can Get It Back. You know, in only an hour, I'm not sure we're going to get it back. You're going to have to come back. When we went to break, I said, you know, when I when when Obama won the Iowa caucus, I, I thought, and and remember, I'm you know I'm a West Coast girl. I live in a very diverse society. Um, that we had come so far, and yet yeah. it appears it appears Karen, 
and, and and you know your experience over the last decade different than mine um although um you know pittsburgh was certainly a wake up the pittsburgh synagogue shooting was certainly a wake-up call for me um uh washington post this week had a story about how um from from one point of view you can say that jews are in the middle where we have our own special place it it again something i would never have anticipated Mm. um but how do we heal these scars how do we get over the birther movement and trayvon martin and black lives matter and charlottesville and white supremacy making a resurgence and the squad how do we how do we begin where are we and how do we begin the healing well I really believe that we can begin right now and like this very moment, this very minute right now to heal the ills of racism in our community. And we must because the house divided cannot stand, but we do that by not uh, keep on removing the scabs over the wound of us without even the full knowledge of what's happened. As you know, anyone that's worked in criminal justice knows that the the least valid witness is the eyewitness. And it's odd that you would think the victim who saw or thinks they saw, they would be the most honest, you know, to say that that person is the one that victimized me. But that for some reason has proven to be the least valid. And that's kind of what's happened with us, too, because you don't have all the facts because you're the veil of emotion and and what hurts you and the harm changes really just the veil is too strong for you to see through it. And that's what's happened with us as black America. We are being used and manipulated and our history has been weaponized against us. And that is the scary part of it. I am a post-segregation child. I was born after, you know, the civil rights movement, even though I've studied it. I've studied lots of movements, not just in America, but all over the world. But so I came, I come from it with a unique narrative. My mother, who sat at the back of the bus, who uh, lived in segregated communities, and my father, they have a different narrative than I have, and I respect that. But... Neither of us should be uh, manipulated by not just the left or the right or any one of us. The truth is, is what the truth is. But when you tell people, like if you tell the victim of a crime that it's not the person that harmed you, and then in their head they think that's the person when it really wasn't. And that's kind of what's happening to us as a people. And then we're seeing people put it against each other. What we've got to do is going back to what Martin Luther King Jr. said, is finding ways to see each other, not by the color of our skin, but by the context of our character. And that's where it begins. And if we keep on dividing ourselves into these holy huddles, and we think that someone, because, you know, if you think that John Brown is is a racist because of the color of his skin, but the Duvaliers of Haiti were friends to black people, then you're thinking, you, that's, your logic is a problem. And 
we have to realize that not everyone that looks like me cares for me, and not everyone that doesn't look like me is not my friend. So, you know, we, we just have to start looking at how, how people are, their character, and character becomes evident pretty quickly. And, you know, when you see the things that, you know, you look at the fact that the only Supreme Court person that sits on the Supreme Court now that's black is Clarence Thomas. My whole point is, is that we don't hold Democrats to the same standard that we hold Republicans, and yet we hold, we call Republicans as racist. Well, and that, so. and that is my, and that is the point that I was trying to make in, in illustrating, um, you know, Colin Powell, um, mm-hmm. you know, that that it's been Republicans who have stepped forward uh, at these moment at these at these defining moments of integration. But that mm-hmm. that but that those gestures were seen as gestures rather than uh, transformational moments in the nation where when Bill Clinton was elected as the first black president, quote unquote, that was seen as a transformational moment. When Barack Obama was elected president, again, uh, silly, silly me, I thought that was a transformational moment. I thought we had reached. It could have been. And is it, it really? Have, it, I mean, it really could have been if Barack Obama, and, you know, and oh my gosh, it could have been. And I wish it would have been to be the last chapter on racial divide. But it was, again, that was weaponized against blacks, and it was used as an excuse for not going into black communities and fixing them because, well, you got a black president. What else do you need? We need housing. We need jobs. We need economic parity. You know, there are a lot of needs that the black community has and still has. But it was, you know, sound in theory signifying nothing. Many black people did not prosper during that administration because we were not the focus of that administration, even though Barack Obama, um, you know, is so-called the first black president. You know, and the term the first black president came from Connie Morrison, who called Clinton the first black president, not as a, a, a term of endearment, but as, as comical because of Clinton's... Uh, ways of, you know, kind of... His oratorical you know. practices in the southern yeah, states. His, his kind of, you know, looseness with... with he, his, he, he, he played saxophone you know, on Arsenio Hall. Yeah, he did that. He was very jivey, and he hung out with a lot of women, and, you know, that kind of... So that was... So it, there are a lot of dog whistles in the black community. It's like, that's not saying... That And it wasn't because he was very cerebral and a Rhodes Scholar that she called him the first black president. It was because he was, you know, well, he had a lot of things that are not wonderful, as you'll say. But um, anyway, he he, so, he was a, he was a a mixed uh, character. So we've yes. got we've got about two or three minutes left here. And so I want to I want to do two things. Um, I want us to kind of take a summary of this little journey we've made through history. And then I want to talk about you coming back and talking about something you touched on that I think is a point which many of us um, are troubled by and we don't know what to do about. And maybe both with your experience in housing and mortgages and your experience um, 
immersed in black politics, you can help us to understand. And that is why why the community uh, has had such a um, has not prospered in the last 50 years and, and yeah. remains segregated, et cetera. And I think that's I think that's a conversation for a whole show, for a whole yeah. separate discussion. But as we close at at the moment, I mean, I, I think I think the numbers that I um, read off in the beginning of this discussion um, tell us that one of the reasons for the open pandering, I'm sorry, um, that sounds terrible and I don't mean it to be, I mean it purely in a political sense, um, of um, of the plethora of Democratic candidates for the, for the presidential nomination. Um, if, if, black, if blacks voted at the same percentage as whites, it would make a difference in terms of their electoral clout. And, and so I wonder why they don't. Well, doing, you know, because I'm a numbers person, and I always tell people English is my second language because I think in numbers. The numbers are right now, but in 2018, 90% of blacks voted for a Democrat. Now, that's to say at 90%, but it used to be higher than that. So there is a there is a walking away from the Democrat Party for good reason. But the highest voting block of people, the highest voting demographic, used to be older white men. That was changed now to, uh, over, let's see, I think it's over 48-year-old black women. Mm-hmm. So as you as you know, so the the dependable uh, b- dependability of the voter for older black women has surpassed older white men, and that was the first time since twenty I think twenty sixteen. So black people are out there voting more because they understand that more and more, which is why the Democrat Party is talking about reparations. Now, no, they're not talking about doing reparations, but they're just talking about having the conversation about reparations, you know, just a, a little tickle of the year. But, um, yeah, because they realize they're losing the black vote. Yeah, but that black vote still, in, in, if you look at it statistically, the percentage of black voters who are eligible to vote is lower, but who actually go and vote is actually lower than either Hispanics or whites. And, and this was true in, in 2018. And, and that's going to be part of our next discussion, Karen, because Vince is in my ear saying, we got to go to break. We got to go pay the bills. So hang on for a second. We'll be back with Karen Watson. <clears throat> listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with Karen Watson. Um, and we have just about 1 minute to close up and say, all right, so where are we today in terms of the black vote? And and as I said, I want to have you back to have a longer conversation about why have why do we still have 
um, overwhelming poverty and and the failures in housing and jobs, et cetera, in the inner cities of the United States. I mean, we've got overall problems, but specific to the um, black community. So, you know, what would be the first step that you would take toward an ethnically neutral voting booth? Well, what I would say on this glorious Sunday, which is my Sabbath, is to what God commanded, which is that love your neighbor as yourself. We can get back to that. We're 99% there. And whether your neighbor is black, brown, yellow, white, just love your neighbor. Just love your neighbor. Well, I love you, Karen. I I love you. I will be in touch. Thank you so much and have a glorious Sunday. And thank you. And and we'll be back next Sunday with more adventures. Uh, and if you have questions or topics you'd like me to answer on the air, send me an email at Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or hit me on Twitter at Joyce Cordy, all one word, or at the Reimagine America radio show site. We are at a time of great flux um, in this nation. And so over the next few weeks, um, we're going to have, I've got invitations out to a number of guests to talk about everything from 5G to um, China. I I think China is a subject we all need to become much more acquainted with. But in the meantime, if you want to hear a repeat of this show, go to Ricochet. Go to ricochet.com or reimagineamerica.com. Send me an email. We'll talk next Sunday. Thank you for your time and have a wonderful Sunday. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.